It's Thursday, January 18th. He was already deemed her abuser. Now he's her heckler-in-chief. We start here. A judge threatens to kick former President Donald Trump out of his courtroom. Trump threw up his hand and said, I would love it. I would love it. And the judge said, I'm sure you would. The bizarre scenes at the defense table as E. Jean Carroll faced him down. Iran has been relying on shadowy proxy groups to do its dirty work. Not anymore. It's going to be Iran itself that comes after you, and they're going to take the gloves off. Has a series of missile strikes changed the tone in the Middle East? And it's a case that could put government agencies on the line. Judges should know what they don't know. But are the pleas of some fishermen just a red herring? From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. Good morning, good morning. I have traded the cold of Iowa for the snow in New Hampshire. But as I was making my way here into Manchester, New Hampshire, both Nikki Haley and Donald Trump said they were not going to join the Republican debate that had been scheduled. So instead of covering a debate tonight, I'm just here covering whatever news comes our way as we get closer to primary day. And it's interesting because when the former president cruised to victory in 98 of the 99 counties of Iowa on Monday, it seemed to solidify this theory that some Republican analysts have been saying for months that this race will either end up with Trump on the ticket or Trump in a jail cell, that he is such a prohibitive favorite that at this point, the courts are the only variable that could derail him. And so almost on cue, two days after this victory, Trump was, where else, in a courtroom. He's a nasty judge. He's a Trump-hating guy. And uh, it's obvious to everybody in the court. It's a disgrace, frankly, what's happening. It's a disgrace. Now, this was not a criminal case. This is a civil defamation trial. The most that would come of this is paying a huge sum of money. But it also served up imagery we thought we might never see. Donald Trump in the same room with the woman a prior jury found he had sexually assaulted. ABC senior investigative correspondent Aaron Katursky was there in that courtroom. So, Aaron, you previewed the case itself yesterday, how this is less about did Donald Trump defame E. Jean Carroll than how much does he owe E. Jean Carroll? The unpredictable thing was the dynamic in the room. So what did you see? It was really something, Brad. At times it was really tense. Other times it was kind of cringeworthy. But at least the way the courtroom is set up, Donald Trump came face to face with E. Jean Carroll, maybe for the first time since 1987, backstage at Saturday Night Live. A jury saw a photo of that moment when the two were with their spouses at the time. Uh, But Donald Trump and E. Jean Carroll had avoided eye contact, it seemed, over the first day of the trial. But there was E. Jean Carroll on the witness stand, and there was Donald Trump at the defense table looking right at her as she explained how he shattered her reputation when he lied, when he denied raping her in the 1990s in a department store dressing room. She said that it unleashed his followers to attack her. The jury saw some of the really ugly messages that Carroll said she received from Trump's followers Uh, disparaging the way she looked, threatening her with sexual and physical violence. And and the jury heard the anguish in her voice when she said that she lost the life that she had been living. The defense has a much different view of Carol's claims. Defense attorneys think that Carol is overplaying it. And Trump himself uh, seemed to be muttering at times with his attorneys and making side comments Uh, saying that this is a witch hunt, this is a con job, so much so that the judge warned him to be quiet, 
or else he threatened to kick him out of court. Wait, the judge could like hear what Trump is saying as others are, are speaking in court? We're not sure the judge actually heard it, but E. Jean Carroll's attorneys certainly heard it and made mention at a couple of different points to the judge that, hey, Trump is saying these things and the jury might be able to hear. And they wanted Trump to knock off the side commentary and the judge warned him not to make audible comments uh, that the jury could hear when he's conferring with the attorneys. And when it happened again, the judge, Lewis Kaplan, reminded Trump that although it is the right of the defendant to be in court for the trial, that right could be forfeited if he's disruptive. And the judge urged him to knock it off. He said he didn't want to have to kick him out of the courtroom. Trump threw up his hand, said, I would love it. I would love it. And the judge said, I'm sure you would, because you just can't control yourself. Wow. And Aaron, I mean, I started this off by saying the most that could happen to Trump is that he'd pay money and that, you know, you never see jail time over this. Unless I guess there's like, is obstruction of justice a thing when or a contempt when when you're talking about a defendant not following the judge's explicit orders? I, I suppose if the behavior gets bad enough here, the judge was simply threatening to have Trump booted from the courtroom. Right. As it is, he's unlikely to be back this week. He has his mother-in-law's funeral on Thursday, but the judge is going to allow him to testify on Monday of next week, and the defense says he intends to do it. Now, that would be quite limited because, as you say, Brad, this trial is only about damages. A prior jury found that uh, Trump sexually assaulted and defamed E. Jean Carroll, awarded her $5 million, and now she's looking for at least $10 million more because she says it keeps happening. We think that the both trials should be thrown out because it's ridiculous. They should be thrown out. And I, frankly, am the one that suffered damages. I should be given money, given damages. She testified that she gets scores and scores, sometimes hundreds in a day. Uh, these, these disparaging messages that she says mimic the words that Trump used when he denied her rape claim back in 2019. Right, because the judge has stipulated to the jury, hey, another jury said that this happened, so that's how you're going to treat it. And then the defendant is there saying, no, this didn't happen. And Trump maintains that none of this happened. That's going to be concerning for a judge as well as you had Trump apparently audibly chuckling as E. Jean Carroll described her experiences. Uh, Aaron Katursky, there in New York. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. Israel is at war in Gaza. Everyone can agree on that. But lately, we're also seeing more and more strikes in other countries from nations assuring the world, hey, this isn't actually an act of war against that country. We're just striking a militant group inside of it. Like the country itself, we're cool with them. The U.S. is one of the nations I'm talking about. We hit the Houthi rebel group in Yemen with dozens of airstrikes. The Houthis generally appear to be working hand-in-hand with Iran because Iran rarely launches missiles from within its own borders. After all, it's got all these nebulous militant groups to do it for them. You can keep your plausible deniability intact. Well, that whole strategy might have just changed in the Mideast. ABC's Matt Gutman is in Tel Aviv right now. Matt, it appears Iran has launched airstrikes into several other countries, including Pakistan. What is happening here? Not to be flip about it, but it seems like there has been a battle royale in the Middle East and even South Asia over the past 48 hours or so, Brad. What we've seen Iran do is something that I don't think we've ever seen them do before. In the space of one 24-hour span, they fired ballistic missiles. And this is 
Iran's elite Revolutionary Guards announcing this publicly that they fired ballistic missiles at Syria, Iraq, and Pakistan, all within 24 hours, um, hitting targets there ranging from ISIS in Syria to what they said were Mossad-affiliated sites in Iraq to Baluchi militants in Pakistan and announcing it, which is really rare. And the day after that, they now come out and say, hey, we also fired ballistic missiles at Israeli-related ships. We don't exactly know what that means right off the coast of India and off the coast of the Maldives. This shows two things. One, the massive regional reach of Iran, which we haven't actually seen them demonstrate before. We knew they had the capability, but now they're announcing that they did it. They want everybody to know, and they're not subcontracting it to their proxies, which you just mentioned. Um, the Houthis, Hezbollah, Hamas, and others. They're doing it themselves this time, and that really is a very significant signal. Yeah, why are we seeing that shift, Matt, from Iran? And I guess, could it mean more overt battles with Iran, the country, from any of their adversaries? I think that they're certainly threatening that, and I think that's the message that's being sent here. Um, don't mess with our proxies too much, and if you attack facilities or targets that are considered too close to us, including Iranian Revolutionary Guards facilities or personnel, and there has been a slew of assassinations of their personnel uh, in recent months, then we are going to act. I do think Iran will likely amp up it through its proxies, of course. And that is clearly what they seem to be signaling right now. Like you hit some of our people and it's not just going to be some, you know, subcontractor group coming after you. It's going to be the Revolutionary Guard, like one of these very well-trained groups. Well-trained groups and well-equipped, mm. and it's going to be Iran itself that comes after you, and they're going to take the gloves off, and it doesn't matter where you are. Uh. So basically what they showed is that they're able to attack with their ballistic missiles with some impressive accuracy from basically right off the coast of India to all the way in western Syria, which is right off the Mediterranean. That is the exact same range as Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, pretty much. Um, so there are some pretty significant signals and messages being sent by this very broad uh, mm -hmm. range of attacks by uh, Iran's Revolutionary Guards, for sure. And as long as we're talking about the, the Houthi rebel group in Yemen, they were considered a terror group several years ago. Then the Biden administration said they were taking them off the terror list to help the people of Yemen. Now the U.S., I guess, is, is considering them a terror group again. How, how does this all work and why does it affect anyone? They're calling them, Brad, specially designated global terrorists. And this new designation basically gives the State Department and the Houthis in Yemen a bit of wiggle room. Because mm. previously, the Trump administration had designated them global terrorist organization, right? Which basically prohibited anybody from doing business with them or meeting with them or in any way materially supporting them. Basically, what the Biden administration has done is split the difference. The objective here was to disrupt and degrade Houthi capabilities to conduct attacks. Uh, and we believe that overall, in terms of the scope and the number of strikes that we took, we have degraded uh, their ability to attack. The Biden administration removed the designation of a global terrorist group uh, in 2021. And what they've done now is call them a specially designated global terrorist group, which means that there can be some face-to-face -face meetings hmm. and it enables aid to get into Yemen. Designed to ensure that food, fuel, 
Critical humanitarian aid and essential commercial goods are able to continue flowing to vulnerable Yemeni civilians. Over 20 million people in Yemen depend on international food aid. So ensuring that that kind of aid can get in while still putting some sanctions on the Houthis gives both the State Department and global aid agencies some wiggle room to be able to help the people there right. while also you know, slapping the, the rebel group, the Iranian-backed rebel group a bit. I see. So the Biden administration takes them off the terror list, now is putting them on, kind of, but I guess trying to ensure that, that this aid gets to Yemen. All right. Matt Gutman there in Tel Aviv in Israel right now. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, lawyers are often accused of going on fishing expeditions. Well, now the fishermen are going lawyering. We're back in a bit. We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor, you know the type, like I've had this person before, that doesn't actually listen to you or who seems just in a rush to end your appointment that you spent months making. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. So no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. Over the last few years, the Supreme Court has struck down a number of rules implemented by the Biden administration. The justices have now issued a significant decision concerning President Biden's student debt relief plan. Like, think of student loan forgiveness. The rationale of gutting that policy was, well, the Department of Education just doesn't have the authority to forgive all these loans. And what the Supreme Court says here, that that is beyond the power of the president. Only Congress can waive that much debt. Which really leads to a bigger question. Do federal agencies have the authority to do anything on their own? Like, if it's not written down in the law, this department shall decide X, 
can that department actually lay down its own ground rules? Well, yesterday, a fascinating Supreme Court case pitted the administration against fishermen. And ABC senior Washington reporter Devin Dwyer was there to watch it all. Devin, I did not have fishermen deciding the role of government offices on my bingo card this year. What What, what is this case? You didn't have it in your boat, Brad? You didn't see them trying to reel in government power? <laughs> I didn't know uh, it would well, get the they... hook. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was a big one on the line at the Supreme Court yesterday, but all jokes aside, this is one of the biggest cases of the year. It's not as sexy as some of the other controversial cases that we talk a lot about here, but this is a case that's all about how our government functions, how it operates, how it regulates uh, all aspects of our lives, from the environment to public health and safety, tax collection, stock trading, online sales, drug approvals, you name it. When Congress passes laws in this country, they often don't specify the fine print. They don't tell agencies how to do it. They just trust that they'll do it and take some prerogative and some deference in, you know, setting out the procedures for how they regulate uh, our daily lives. And this is a case that is a big fight over small fish, if you will, to continue the analogy. Um, it's a small fishing regulation that uh, dates back some number of years, uh, and it deals with who pays for federal monitors on board herring fishermen's vessels when they go out to sea. For a long time, the government has required these monitors to be on board the ship so that they can take down data on the size of the fish, the temperature of the water, what they're seeing. And what this case is about is a group of fishermen is challenging part of this regulation, Brad, which says that in some cases, these fishermen actually have to foot the bill for their own government monitors. This is the radar that helps that, you find the fish, essentially. It, more or less, it looks straight under the boat and it sees whatever's under the boat. We went fishing uh, out in Cape May, New Jersey, home to uh, one of the very few uh, herring fishing fleets that are privately owned in this in this country. And we met two small business owners, Bill Bright, he's one of the plaintiffs in this case, and Stephen Axelson. You've been doing this for years. You love it. Yeah, and I don't know how to do anything else. <laughs> Multi-generation families in the herring fishing business who told me that this regulation, if it holds that they have to pay for the salaries of some of these government monitors, it would cut into their margins, which are already shrinking because of the changing dynamics of the fishing economy, and it could even put them out of business. You're worried about the government forcing more fishermen to pay for their own inspectors. Me and everybody around me is concerned about that, highly concerned about that, because the margins are so tight right now. They say the law actually says nothing about having us foot the bill, and therefore they want the Supreme Court to strike down that regulation that they have to pay for these monitors, but also take a much more sweeping attack on government regulation more broadly. Now, we should say that it hasn't taken effect yet, and no fishermen have actually had to pay anything, so this is a bit you know preemptive on their part. The Biden administration says this is all legit and in fact um, says that for many years, 40 years, in fact, the Supreme Court has explicitly allowed federal agencies to have deference in setting the minutiae, the granular detail of regulations when Congress doesn't spell it out. And in this case, these fishermen can be ordered to pay the salaries of some of these monitors because of the ambiguous language in the law. And they mounted a pretty vigorous defense of that um, at the high court. Wait, yeah, so the justices basically have said in the past, like decades ago, 
a federal agency can be the one to kind of fill in the blanks, right? So, I mean, if that goes away, what, what would that impact? And in fact, it was Justice Antonin Scalia, the iconic conservative justice who in 1984 wrote the opinion you're talking about. Huh. It was an opinion in a case called Chevron versus the National Resources Defense Council. And what he said at that time and in that case, Brad, is that if a question in the law is ambiguous, that judges and courts should defer to the experts at a federal agency, as long as their conclusion and their policy approach is reasonable. They can't just do anything they want. But as long as it's within the bounds of rationality and reasonableness, it's okay. And you can imagine that uh, over time, Brad, conservatives, business groups, industry groups have really chafed at that decision. And they believe that federal power, government power has gotten way out of hand when Congress doesn't say something. They argue that these agencies are really uh, running with it in a way that's costing businesses a heck of a lot of money. Did you get a sense of how the justices feel? If Antonin Scalia was the one to be like, yeah, yeah, let the Fed, let the government agency do its thing. Let it, let it do its job. Did the conservative justices agree with the late Scalia? They used soft gloves on Scalia yesterday, Brad. I mean, there was some acknowledgement that even Scalia himself had acknowledged that sometimes methodologies promulgated in opinions can be wrong. And they said here, maybe this is just one of those cases, but at least four of the current conservative justices have for years explicitly called for the eradication of what's known as the Chevron doctrine. They want this case overturned. And that was on full display yesterday. I mean, your argument is that Chevron deference is problematic. But how do we determine how much deference is too much deference? Justice Clarence Thomas took aim at just this whole idea of deference. How much should a judge, um, should the American people defer to unelected bureaucrats at federal agencies? Justice Brett Kavanaugh said this whole practice is actually unsettling to our economy, to our society, because every time we have an election or a different party takes control, they set forth new policies and new regulations. Mm. And if those can just change on on the whim of an election, that creates a lot of instability. And uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch has long been an outspoken opponent of this doctrine. And in every one of those, Chevron is exploited against the individual and in favor of the government. There was a vigorous counter argument to all of this, Brad. The Biden administration warned that by upending this precedent, it would potentially invalidate rules that govern public uh, health and safety, stock trading, environmental regulation, really open a jar of worms that the Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger warned this court really shouldn't want to open right now. Thousands of judicial decisions sustaining an agency's rulemaking or adjudication as reasonable would be open to challenge. And that profound disruption is especially unwarranted because Congress could modify or overrule the Chevron framework at any time. And the liberal justices, all three of them, were very much of that view, that stare decisis, uh, established precedent should stand, that judges are not issue experts in fisheries policy, for example. And, you know, judges should know what they don't know. Is it practical to expect Congress to put in that level of granular detail when it comes to a, you know, a, a, a groundbreaking scientific substance mm. <laughs> that could cure one of our ailments? And still there are places where we don't know whether this drug is a, is a, is a uh, whether this product is a drug or a dietary supplement. And it's best to defer to people who do know. And that's what we heard uh, from Justices Elena Kagan, Sonia Sotomayor, and Ketanji Brown-Jackson. 
But the two wild cards, Brad, were Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Both uh, were somewhat skeptical of the Chevron doctrine, critical of too much federal government power. That's not surprising, but they were much more circumspect about whether the court should overturn outright uh, this Chevron case. We know John Roberts, uh, an institutionalist, is very reluctant to overturn precedent. Amy Coney Barrett had some concerns. She was suggesting that perhaps they could roll back or limit uh, that precedent in some way, but wasn't uh, necessarily all the way in. So uh, this is going to be a balancing act for the court, but it's going to be one that could touch all those different areas of society that have federal regulations. Congress doesn't spell out the fine print on a lot of those regulations. And so to some extent, over the last 40 years, we've relied on experts at government agencies uh, to do the dirty work that could be coming to an end or at least rolled back pretty soon. Yeah. And while it sounds like on its face, like it's big government against these small time fishermen, apparently the lawyers arguing this case on behalf of the fishermen are linked to Charles Koch, who oversees a ton of big industry stuff. And you get the feeling that lots of regulations could be relaxed on these big industries if this goes through. Devin Dwyer, fascinating case. And you got some fishing out of it. Thank you so much. (laughs) We didn't catch anything, Brad, but thanks for having me. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, if you wondered whether the alcohol business has changed, well, here's your proof. One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. Mega companies like Uber have big appetites, but surely a billion dollars is a lot to eat. This week, the alcohol delivery app Drizzly announced it's shutting down, which is big news for drinkers considering Uber bought Drizzly less than three years ago for a cool billion dollars. Ding dong, Drizzly. Uber didn't say sales were down or anything. It just wants to focus on its bigger delivery service, Uber Eats. But Drizzly had recently announced layoffs. It's also been embroiled in a battle with the Federal Trade Commission after it stayed silent about a cybersecurity flaw that exposed customers' personal data. But to see where a move like this fits into the bigger scheme, you have to remember where things stood as this company was acquired. This is a pathway for these businesses to frankly make up for a lot of the constraints that have been imposed upon them. So back in 2020, with so many restaurants and bars shuttered across the country, deliveries soared, including alcohol deliveries. Uber had been expanding Uber Eats for a few years, but now this service was exploding. Uber went ahead and bought Drizzly in 2021. Then, just months later, it bought another competitor called GoPuff, which was acquiring big liquor retailers of its own. So chunks of the online alcohol market were rapidly coming under Uber's domain to the point where the FTC reportedly began investigating it for anti-competitive behavior. Fast forward a couple years, the investigations don't appear to have led to big changes, and Uber now doesn't have a ton of other national competitors in the alcohol space. Some of the most popular apps for alcohol delivery are DoorDash and Postmates, and guess what? Uber owns Postmates. 
When companies are swallowed up by bigger ones, sometimes it is about acquiring their tech or employees. Sometimes it's simply about washing them away. And in a message to customers last night, Drizzly said it encourages users to check out Uber Eats, saying, quote, we get it, they're tall, they're dapper, we think you'll be really good together. Like, even the statement shows that while they're owned by the bigger company, it still feels to them like they are seeding you to the big man on campus. I guess they don't have much time to whine about it. More on all these stories at abcnews.com or the ABC News app. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. 